0: Well, good morning. It's great to be with all of you this morning as we uh, worship the Lord together. We want to uh, begin our time this morning with a word of prayer as we uh, ask God to attend to our worship this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, even though the proximity of us uh, being together is not um, happening. We're thankful that we have uh, the way that we can uh, worship through the study of your Word, even though the time in which we are currently living uh, has adjusted that for us by your providence. Lord, we do ask that you would attend to our time, that you would give us wisdom as we think through these things, as we... open our hearts to the truth of the scriptures, that we would fully understand exactly what you have for us and that we would be enriched by it all for your glory and for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world in which we live. And so we praise you for that. We ask your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. We are currently in very interesting days as we think through um, the situation at hand. As I speak to you today, I am actually speaking to an empty church because of the current situation that we are in uh, in our country. The current viral crisis has left both health professionals and the general public in somewhat of a panic, the world has been gripped by fear of the unknown, and currently we have been given directions to stay away from any personal contact with others as much as humanly possible. There is uncertainty, obviously, in the air, and without a doubt, all people, whether they are Christian or non-Christian people, are wondering when this entire event will end. Those of us who are true Christians are thinking of many other things as well. We are thinking of the sovereignty of God and how it is in these kinds of times a comfort to us as we walk through these things every day when it's filled with unknowns and new information around every corner. We, of course, are thinking of our own friends and family members and the best ways to mitigate the spread of a potential deadly virus to others that we care about. And of course, we are thinking of what all of this means for the future as we are here on this earth. And while we know that the future for every true Christian is secure with God, we can still be affected by fear. And of course we understand that sinful fear is not from the Lord. And yet at the same time God uses the emotion of fear in or in order to motivate us to obedience to his word. We who are part of this church have been studying Romans chapter 13 and we have learned from Romans chapter 13 in our study that The fear of judgment is a motivator. It's a motivator for us to submit to governing authorities because we know that they are placed there by God. And therefore, if we obey them, we are ultimately in that way obeying God. And so therefore, we must always obey. And in whom we are obeying God himself, there is a right fear We're also thinking of those who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because in times like these, when the potential for sickness and death is heightened before our eyes, it is really a reality that we face every day because neither one of us can choose the day of our death. But when it is heightened in times like these, we think of others and we think of their eternity. When we think of others in that way, I trust that we also are speaking to them in those places of influence where we can share the eternal and life-saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And while the virus may be a potential danger to our physical lives, the proclamation of the gospel could also be a danger for the very ones who know Jesus Christ and who speak the gospel to others. And therefore, in times like these, we often find ourselves having the tendency to remain silent. We remain silent and fear all of those things that we should not fear as Christians. And so it has been on my heart and mind to just speak a little bit about how we are to live when All of this goes on. What is our attitude to be in times like this? And in order to answer those questions, I want to take us somewhere that, at least in our own body, have been before. But the implications are similar to what we have been hearing from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. So if you would take your Bibles with me and open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And simply by way of reminder, as we begin, Peter is doing the same thing here that the Apostle Paul was doing in the book of Romans. He is saying that in light of your salvation in Jesus Christ, this is how you are to live. In fact, I'll just Remind us of that from chapter one, beginning in verse three, the apostle Peter says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. In this, you greatly rejoice. In other words, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must realize just what it is that we have been given through Jesus Christ. In short, and without going into a whole lot of detail this morning, as Christians, we are secure in Christ. No matter what happens to us here on this earth, we are secure because of our relationship with Christ. And because we understand that, then we ought to be greatly rejoicing, Peter says in verse 6. And then he goes on to say in verses 13 through 15, because of that understanding, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. You see, that is the same truth that Paul was speaking about in Romans chapter 13. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, because of the mercy of God, because of the grace of God shown to us, then live in light of that truth. Live in light of all that you have been given in Jesus Christ. The truth ought to change our lives. It ought to change our lives no matter what the circumstances are. And so we notice what Peter says here in chapter 2, And verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He goes on to say, servants, in verse 18, are to be submissive to masters with all respect. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience, verse 19, toward God, a man bears up under the sorrows and sufferings, even when they're unjust. He goes on to speak about the family in chapter 3 as the relationship between husbands and wives in light of your relationship with Jesus Christ and how that is to be a mutual submission that takes place within the home as each one is submitting to Christ honoring one another in their roles as husband and wife. And so Peter sums it all up in verse 8, let all be harmonious, let all be sympathetic, brotherly brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead, because you were called to this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So you see beloved, here is something that we need to understand as Christians, particularly in our current circumstance. Blessings come in and through adversity. Blessings come in and through adversity. And so behave in a Christ honoring way, he says. You notice that in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3. Let him who means to love life and see good days, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, just like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, and why we are to respond to those in authority over us is because of fear, fear of God. But none of this, as we look at it, none of it guarantees us ease this side of heaven. Blessing doesn't mean no trouble. Blessings from God do not mean no suspicion about who we are as Christians, or no difficulty for us here and now. But knowing who we are in Christ and the security that we have in Him and in the heavens motivates us to live as we ought in spite of the circumstances. And so here is Peter equipping us with the truth, equipping us with what we need to hear in reference to the times in which we live. He's saying, in essence, each and every believer, each and every one of us, is armed with a trust in the power of a righteous life through Christ in order to have endurance in the midst of the most hurtful and unknown circumstances that could ever come. Then in chapter 3, verse 13 to 16. Peter lists for us several strategies for that endurance in difficult times. Several strategies for that endurance in difficult times. And this is what I want to give us this morning. I want to give us six strategies for endurance in difficult circumstances. Six strategies for endurance in difficult circumstances. right here for us in verses 13 through 16. And so here is the first one. The first strategy for endurance is this, that no matter what happens, always pursue God. No matter what happens, always pursue God. Or we could say it this way, be passionate for goodness. Notice verse 13, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's interesting that Peter begins this entire section with a rhetorical question. And based upon our own experience and based upon our own God-given sense of justice, even in the human realm, this question begs for a negative answer, doesn't it? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer in our minds is always that. No, no one. Think about it. Most people... Most people, even even unbelievers, believers and unbelievers alike, find it hard to mistreat those who are doing what is morally good. In fact, when we see someone harmed in spite of the good they do or because of the good they do, it stirs up in us a sense of fairness, uh, an idea of what is fair and what isn't fair because it seems so unnatural for someone to suffer for doing what is right. Those who love to do good are very often gracious people. They are normally loving and kind. Even even unsaved humanity has this sense within them this this God uh character if you will this this uh, since man is made in the image of God God has given him those incommunicable or those communicable attributes by which God manifests even his very character in the unsaved as he does. In the world at large. And it's those kinds of people that are normally liked, endeared by the masses. They're kind people. They just do kind things. But at the other end of the spectrum are those who take advantage of the unsuspecting, those who are evil in their dealings, those who fraudulently take advantage of the most needy. In the church, we know them as those who twist the truth for their own good. We've seen it even during this crisis that we are in today, even with people who have hoarded certain objects and items for their own good while others are going without. It's these kind of people that are normally not revered with much likeness by the masses. But notice that Peter here in chapter 3 reminds us as Christians that we are to be doing good. And that doing good, by the way, is no guarantee of safety from personal harm. And so it is in light of that reality that the question arises. What is the good? What is the good here that believers are to be continually seeking to do? Well, in the context of 1 Peter as a whole, particularly as we have run through the first couple chapters, it's all that he spoke about from chapter 2 verse 13 all the way to chapter 3 in verse 12. All the good that is in submission, submission to authority, submission to those in our workplace, submission within the home, which is all of the submission to God. It is the idea working out of that first principle and first law that god gave you shall have no other god before me you shall love the lord your god with your whole heart with your whole soul your whole mind it is submission to him that is to drive us in living out this truth and we live it out in love so when we respond with submission when we respond with living according to the principles laid out before us in those verses Although it may be unnatural, and although it may seem to go against all common sense from time to time, that should not deter any of us from good works. Why? Because nothing can truly harm the follower of Christ. Nothing can truly harm us. We are secure in heaven. We are secure in Christ. Nothing here can remove us from that. It's like the words of Jesus when he said, do not fear him who can take your body and put it in the grave, but fear him who can take your soul and put it in hell. So whether in society or whether at the workplace or whether in the home or in the church, the zeal and the drive for every one of us is to continually pursue what is morally good that truly unites, because we are always secure in Christ. So always pursue what is good. That's the first strategy for endurance during this time. Don't let this time be used by Satan himself to take you as a Christian and not endure. You are called to endure, and you can endure because of who you are in Christ, you can pursue what is good in spite of what's going on around you. The second strategy for our endurance is this, no matter what happens, always be willing to suffer. No matter what happens, always be willing to suffer. Notice what Peter says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. The implication from Peter's words there is that the possibility of suffering is very real. The possibility that you will suffer even when you do what is good is there. And when we live rightly and yet we suffer for it, our first response oftentimes is to question Question, why is this, whatever it is, why is it happening to me? Why is this going on with me? We even sometimes by ourselves, when we're driving in our car, sitting in our home, whatever it is, we, we will say to God, God, I've done good. I've done what you've asked me to do. I'm living for you. Why is this happening to me? That's the question in our minds. That's the question in our hearts. We want to know what is going on. Well, let me give you several purposeful reasons why, even though we do good, God allows us to suffer. It's not an exhaustive list, but I, I want to give you several this morning under this second point. Always be willing to suffer. Why, why do these things happen? Well, first, God has a spiritual purpose for his children. God has a spiritual purpose for his children. In fact, if you turn over just for a moment to first Peter chapter four, Peter says to these dear saints that he's writing in chapter four and verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep rejoicing that's a that's a a, a a turn all the way back to chapter 1 where we saw that we are to be greatly rejoicing in the in the fact that you're even suffering <clears throat> with Christ keep rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation if you're reviled for the name of Christ you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So by no means let any among you suffer as a murderer or a thief, and evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. In other words, don't be surprised because God uses times like these as a spiritual confirmation of our salvation. That is simply to say that God has a spiritual purpose with all of this. And one of those purposes is to increase our faith. Increase our faith through the knowledge that we truly are His children. That we are saved. It confirms to us as we suffer with Christ that we are the children of God. And the willingness to endure for the name of Christ produces and strengthens our faith. And so Peter says in verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. That means that when we stand for God in the midst of this hostile world and this world that treats people poorly, when we're treated poorly, it glorifies and reflects with divine clarity God's name to others. And it confirms to us the reality of our salvation in Christ. There's another purpose though that God uses in these times and that is this, it brings blessing upon our life. It brings blessing from God upon us. Some unbelievers can't tolerate a man or a woman who does what is right. They 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 do not want to see a Christian responding the way we are called to respond to these things. Why? Because a holy life in the midst of an ungodly world is an irritation. It's like sand between your feet, it agitates. Christians in the midst of an unregenerate world agitate the hostility. But one of the great things about that is that a believer who suffers under those circumstances stands in the blessing of God, stands in a state of blessing. So we are blessed when we endure such difficulty. Third is this, rejoice because you stand with Christ. The third uh, blessing that comes is rejoice because you stand with Christ. None of us deserve to be in the family of God. And here we are. And we are standing, if you will, with Christ. We are standing in the shoes of Christ. And yet the blessing of all blessings is we are privileged We are privileged to stand there. We don't deserve to be in that. We don't deserve to have that in our lives. And yet here we are in Christ. And so we endure with Christ and we endure like Christ because of our identification with him. And so endurance helps us, brings blessing to us, and it assures us of our salvation. But it also does this. It helps us comfort others. It helps us comfort other people. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. In other words, our One of the blessings of endurance is is that it equips us to be used by God in order to comfort others who are enduring the same realities. We need to be saying to each other uh, what one friend of mine said to me years ago when it was difficult, and I was going through some difficult times. He said this, listen, brother, be glad that you're in the battle Be glad that you're in the battle. In other words, it's a lot worse to to not be in the battle than it is to know that you're in the battle because being in the battle means you're with Christ. That came from someone who was going through a whole lot of difficulty in their own life because of the conviction of truth, because of what they were having to endure. And it was through that pain that they were going through that they reminded me of the right attitude when it's difficult. Be glad you're in the battle. There's another blessing that God brings through these things. We learn how to expend ourselves for others. We learn how to expend ourselves for others. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 says here, For the third time I'm ready to come to you. This is what Paul said to the Corinthian church. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul saying to the Corinthian church, the church that he had planted, listen, I love you. And I want to see you come to know Christ. I want to see you come to grow in Christ. And I'll gladly burn myself out for that good that you might grow in Christ and know Christ. I have such a concern for you that it doesn't matter what I have to endure for your sake, I'll do it. And so we need to do that in this time. God is teaching us during this time that very reality. That is a blessing in our life. That is a blessing for us, something that maybe we wouldn't learn any other way. And so God has allowed this moment for us. There's another blessing too, and that is that we learn to rejoice because others see Christ through our endurance. We learn to rejoice as Paul has told us, as Peter has told us, we to greatly rejoice because others see Christ through our endurance. In fact, Paul said in Colossians chapter one and verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in what I'm going through, as difficult as it might be, because it's going to benefit you. In other words, when I endure difficulty, you win. When I go through hard times and difficult times, you're the benefactor. You're the one who benefits from it. Why? Because you see Christ in me. And all I want you to do is see Christ. I want you to turn to Christ. So all of those things are blessings to us as we go through this. As we continue to endure and walk in this, we always are to pursue good and we are always to be willing to suffer. Well, there's a third uh, strategy for endurance that Peter gives us here in first Peter chapter three. And that is this be unyielding to your natural reactions Be unyielding to your natural reactions. Notice verse 14, the second part of that verse, he says, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. The last part of verse 14 is a quote from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8. It's interesting when you look at the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 8, King Ahaz was the king in Israel, and he was facing a crisis. The other kings of Israel and Syria wanted him to join with them against the Assyrian forces who were planning to come against them, but Ahaz refused. Because he refused to follow them, they began to threaten to invade him but there was always things going on behind the scenes, right? Behind the scenes, Ahaz had already made an alliance with Assyria. And it was an alliance which he was warned against by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had come to him earlier and said, don't make an alliance with the Assyrians. And now, because he had made this alliance with the Assyrians, he can't go with the other kings of Israel and Syria against the Assyrian forces. He has this secret alliance behind the scenes that he was warned not to do. And there were many in that time that had thought Isaiah and Jeremiah, by the way, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, they had thought that those two prophets were conspirators with the enemy, with the Assyrians, because they wanted the people not to make an alliance with other powers. Why? Because the people were to have complete dependence upon God. They were not to depend upon other forces. They were to be dependent upon God in all things. And so God says to Isaiah and the people through Isaiah, don't fear. Fear not. Don't fear the enemy's intimidation. Instead, fear the Lord. Isaiah chapter 8. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Don't fear. Don't fear the outside. Fear the Lord. It's the same exhortation for us today. As believers, we're not to be fearful of things that may threaten us. Just like Peter is saying here, don't fear their intimidation, those who come against you because you're a Christian. We're not to fear those things that are outside of us. We're to be fearing the Lord. And that'll help us fight against the natural tendency in us to fear man. Why? Because if we're not careful, if we're not careful even as Christians. When we fear the wrong things, we can be paralyzed in our Christian lives. And so we must choose to not be frightened. It's a choice we must make. We must choose to fear the Lord and not fear those things that are outside of that. And so one of the first steps for victory in responding right is refusing to respond wrong. If you're going to respond right, then refuse to respond wrong. Let me give you a fourth incentive. A fourth incentive for endurance during times like this, is be yielding to the supremacy of Christ in your life. Be yielding to the supremacy of Christ in your life. Notice verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So regardless of the circumstances we may face as believers, We are always to yield to the supremacy of Christ as Lord. That means we are to accept, to acknowledge in both word and action. In what we say and in what we do, we are to both accept and acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty and his majesty in our lives. That's what sanctify means there In that verse, in verse 15, to exalt Christ, to to magnify Christ, to allow Christ to have what he is, the primary place, the sole place in our life. As believers, we are those who sanctify Christ as Lord. We set him apart as Lord, exalt him as the object of our love and the one to whom we are to live in constant loyalty. Why? Because we recognize His perfection. We recognize Him for who He is, and we magnify His glory in our life by obedience. So to sanctify Christ as Lord means to submit to His will, to do what He says, realizing sometimes His will includes suffering, includes difficulty. In fact, that's exactly what Peter says in the first couple chapters of this epistle, that this is the will of the Lord for you, that you suffer. In other words, Christ as Lord is Christ set above all other allegiances in our life. Just like it says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and following about discipleship at following Christ, we have to have a love for Christ that is greater than the love for anything else that we might have in this life. We have to die to self if we are to be disciples of Christ. So this then becomes our moral imperative as we walk through this moment here in our day and age, as we walk through this crisis, this time in our day and age when everybody else is panicking or wondering by the unknown what will come next, and that stirs up in them panic. This is our moral imperative. It is the very choice that is to control our choices. God is Lord. Christ is Lord in our hearts. Christ's lordship is to be in our hearts, the very inner sanctuary of where Christ is to be enthroned and worshiped as the sovereign God and thereby dominating all of our life. Then there's a fifth incentive, a fifth incentive for endurance, which flows out of the previous incentive that we just talked about, about Christ being Lord, and that is this. You want to endure during this moment? Then defend the faith. Defend the faith. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Defend the faith. You want to endure during this time? Then think about defending the faith. At all times, we as Christians are to be prepared to make a defense. Always be ready. Literally, that just means always be prepared. Always be prepared at every turn, at every moment. The implication here is that us as believers are never to be unprepared. We're never to be in a moment by which we are unprepared to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never to be unwilling to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never to be timid in the reality to share the faith and truth about Jesus Christ. We have the privilege as Christians to live in opposition to the evil of the world. And that will arouse public attention. People will look at us as different and as the recipients of God's given grace You and I will become Exhibit A in their trial against what is going on. And in the public courtroom, we are to stand and defend why we stand with Christ. The word defense here is the word apologetic. It's a legal term. legal term for a formal defense in a law court reminds us of what Paul said and Peter both, but Paul especially when he stood before the Rome, the Roman authorities giving a defense for why he was doing what he's doing, and he's saying it was all about Christ and preaching the resurrection. And that doesn't mean that we'll be able to answer all of the questions that someone might throw our way. We may not have all of the actual ways in which we can now uh, dissect and and. Uh, intellectually get rid of any argument that somebody might come up with, some critic might have, it doesn't even mean that we'll be able to solve all the problems that might be advanced against us as Christians. But what it does mean is that we must be willing to defend against malicious attacks for the sake of the truth and the eternal destiny of the person who's attacking us. We have to stand for the faith because their life depends upon it. We're secure in Christ. No one can remove our faith. We trust what God says. But the person who is attacking, the person who may be asking the questions, the person who is looking at us and and wondering about us, has the right to hear from us, as we heard last week. They have a right. We owe it to them. We owe the gospel to them. We are indebted to them for the gospel. And so the world questions because in the midst of difficulty, you and I have hope. That's what what Peter says here. Give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And it's a reason for that hope that we give an account. We tell them about Christ. We tell them about why we're secure. We tell them about why we're not anxious about what's going on. We tell them about why we're obeying the authorities over us. We're telling them why we're doing what we're doing in honoring Jesus Christ. And our faith in Christ is going to be seen. It'll be observed because it has visibly changed our lives. We're not like the rest of the people around. We're not going to the grocery store hoarding the supplies that are there. We're not acting like our friends and neighbors and people around us who are doing those things. We are living changed lives and that change is being questioned that change is being in the minds of an unbeliever wondering why we're doing what we're doing to which each of us have the opportunity and we have the privilege to share about the one who made that change we can share with them about Jesus Christ the one who made the change in our lives why we think the way we do because we have as peter said at the beginning we have been given mercy and been caused to be born again to a living hope. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive. Our hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have an inheritance, an imperishable, undefiled, unfading away, reserved in heaven for us inheritance. One that is protected by God. What can anything on this earth do to us? The worst thing that can happen to us is the best thing that could ever happen happen to us, we would be with God in glory. So when questioned, or when the opportunity arises to share our faith, we are to give a careful, thoughtful, reasoned out, reasonable and biblical explanation of what we know of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter means when he says in verse 15, with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and fear. Gentleness, that's our demeanor. That's our demeanor, our demeanor toward others who oppose us. And fear is our healthy fear of God and our devotion to the truth. The once for all delivered to us truth of God that we are to be defending. Listen, we as Christians, if we cannot thoughtfully reason, give, give reason for our hope, We will inevitably be insecure in the face of opposition. We'll be insecure in the face of circumstances like we are in in our day and age today. And we will even doubt whether we are saved at all. So each one of us ought to be able to give a clear testimony concerning the hope that we have in us. And if not, then we need to learn how to be clear and learn how to be biblical about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one last strategy for endurance for our time this morning. One last strategy. Keep a pure conscience. Keep a pure conscience. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The word keep there just means to possess or maintain, possess or maintain. The conscience is what accuses and what excuses our actions. It's the it's the bell that God has placed within us that rings and, and is bound to truth. It needs to be bound and informed by the truth of God. And it is, the conscience is who we are on the inside works as a source of either affirmation or conviction, depending on what's going on with us and depending on what it's bound to. The reason the world does what it does without any kind of bother upon its conscience is because its conscience isn't bound to the truth. Like the days of Israel, where everyone was doing right in their own eyes, they were defining the truth themselves. So their conscience was seared, but our conscience is bound to the truth. And so Peter says, keep a clear conscience, keep a good conscience. A pure conscience is one that doesn't accuse. One that won't accuse you as a believer of sin because you're living a godly life. And as believers, we are to live with that good conscience so that when trouble comes, when times like this come, the burden of guilt won't weigh us down. When we disobey, when we do what's wrong, our conscience brings guilt upon us. Why? Because we know that we're doing that which we should not be doing. Our disobedience might even bring about suffering, even though for wrong reasons. What blessing is it to suffer when you do what's wrong, Peter said to the believers? But a glare, a good conscience is going to help us not to be anxious. It's going to help us not to be troubled in trials because we know that we are suffering for what is right. Beloved, these these may be troubling times. These may be difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in, particularly as a country. But these times need not be troubling for us as Christians. They need not be. We are in Christ. We can let the world see just how it is there to respond in the face of adversity. Follow the Christian. Follow the one who's following Christ. Live out the hope that you have in Christ. Through obedient submission to our Lord as we submit to those in authority over us. So we have a strategy. We have a strategy to endure. It's right here in the Word of God. Peter has laid it out for us. No matter what the what we are enduring, no matter what the circumstance, no matter the difficulty, no matter the trial, we have a strategy for endurance. Do what is right, no matter the cost. Be willing to suffer, no matter the circumstance. Be unyielding to your natural tendency to fear. Fear God. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled by it. Yield to the supremacy of Christ in your life. Allow Him to to have rule, to have sway. Obey what He says, even when it doesn't seem to be making sense. Follow what God says. Defend the faith. Defend the faith. Give a reason for the hope that's in you. And through it all, possess a good conscience. Possess a good conscience. Why? Because it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. Because it honors God. Your endurance honors God. As Christians, our endurance honors the Lord. When we live like that, others see Christ in us. And God is glorified. And so that is our mission. That is our task. Even though we're not here in the same building together, even though we're worshiping in different places as in proximity, we are all here together worshiping the Lord in the word of God, understanding just what it is God would have for us that we might continue to endure no matter how long this takes, no matter how long it takes before we're together again. But one thing we will rejoice in, we can rejoice in Christ and look forward to the day when we will once again be together worshiping as a family in proximity together and ultimately knowing that one day we will worship him for eternity together forever and ever and ever. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time this morning. Lord, these are, these are new times. These are different times. These are not normal, what we are used to, but we are, your children, you care for us. We have your word. We can be learning from it individually. And we are thankful that we live in this moment right now today, where we can have the technology to be able to be together, at least in picture and in voice that we can love you, learn from you and live for you in a world that seems so anxious about what's happening. Lord, preserve us for your glory, protect your people. And Lord, we pray that you indeed would uh, allow us by your grace as we submit to you, continue to endure and to continue to share the faith where we're able in the midst of this crisis. And we'll trust you through it all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.